Hey y'all, I'm your host, Rita, and you're listening to The Backpacking Introvert, a podcast where I unpack the mind, connect with my love of nature, and write outside the lines. Thank you for tuning in today. Out of all the podcasts, you chose mine, and I'm glad you're here. Before we get started on today's podcast episode, I have a little bit of information I need to share with you. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health providers with any questions or concerns you may have regarding any mental health issues. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking mental health care from a licensed professional in your area because of something you may have heard from my podcast. I speak only from my personal experiences, knowledge, and education, and not as a licensed therapist. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. With that said, let's get started. Welcome back to the Backpacking Introvert. Today we have a special guest joining us for the second time on my podcast, and I'm so delighted to have her back. Amanda Telly from Wilderness Outdoor Therapy joins us today to talk about body dysmorphia, all things body image, and perhaps some disorder eating. Welcome to my podcast, Amanda. I'm so excited to see you again and that you're back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have invited Amanda to talk about this topic because we are well into the new year now that we are in March and every new year we hear the tired cliche of new year, new you. I wanted to break that down with her since her background has been helping individuals with eating disorders. So could you tell us a little bit about your experience working with individuals who've struggled with eating disorders? Yes. And and for the record, I will say when I was in grad school, I had two things that I had zero interest in working with as a counselor. And one of them was eating disorders. The other was substance abuse. Uh, Funny enough, I work with both. (laughs) So never say never. When I graduated and then I was working toward my internship hours, there's actually a local hospital in the Dallas area called Eating Recovery Center, and they treat only eating disorders. And uh, I had connected with a psychiatrist there and she invited me to come work with her uh, in eating disorders. And I was pretty explicit and I said, you know, I don't have any background in eating disorders. I don't really have an interest in working with eating disorders because from my perspective at that point in time, it didn't make sense to me. I I didn't understand the struggle. Uh, And she said, don't worry about that. Just come work for me. And so I saw it as a growth opportunity. I went to work with her. uh, And so I started as what was called a milieu coordinator and essentially ran groups, helped run the schedule for the day uh, at a partial hospitalization level of care. And then they opened up an inpatient and residential hospital while uh, I was in that role. And so I would have meals with patients, I would help run the groups. And then I was promoted to be a primary therapist where I worked with individuals and families as well as couples doing family, individual therapy, all of that, and then also running groups at the hospital. Teenagers, adults, all of it. And I stayed there for about three years before starting my private practice. And so I was just immersed in eating disorder world and learned uh, very quickly and began to understand a lot about it, which was really cool to me. And I fell in love with working with it. And so I continue an outpatient. So you would say you would feel like it's your purpose now? Yes. Yeah. It's certainly a passion. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. Awesome. From your experience, at what age have you noticed that individuals start struggling with eating disorders? That's a good question. So there are several different types of eating disorders and depending on the type of eating disorder may determine age. Uh, For example, there's an eating disorder called ARFID, which uh, is an acronym for avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And typically you may see that starting younger, like with children, because it may be quote unquote, like a picky eater, mm-hmm. um, not to scare any parents who have picky eaters. It does not mean that your child necessarily has this. Right. Um, but a lot of times it's texture issues, things like that. And so they have really restrictive food and tend to like things like just chicken nuggets, mac and cheese, and like, we'll just eat those things over and over and over again. But that's a lot of kids. And so it it depends developmentally kind of what happens with that as far as whether or not it becomes a disorder. So long answer, but to say that that one can start younger with other eating disorders, I think historically speaking, it used to be, it could start at any time, teenage years, adult years, and that is still true. But what we are seeing is that eating disorders are starting earlier and younger as time goes on. What do you attribute that to? There are a number of things. I think media, I think social media, we have access to so much now, and there are so many images and messages that we're bombarded with and at a a younger and earlier age. And so I think that that has a significant uh, part of it, as well as uh, you referenced the new year, new you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think not to blame parents, but I think a lot of times culture and parents buying into some of those messages and then modeling dieting behavior. You know, there are kids at 10 years old that will go on a diet with and follow like mom's diet plan. Uh, or be sent to a fat camp to lose weight and things like that. And so there are a number of contributing factors, those being just a few of them. That is to me like unfathomable at 10 years old to be starting a diet. I just don't, I, I can't get, that's mind blowing to me. But how could a child be worrying about their body at 10 years old? The parents of course have good intentions. I think it's oftentimes under the guise of eating healthy uh, and that I say in quotes as well. Now, I I think maybe because things are changing, like people are going through hormone changes at 10 years old now, and all of that is starting earlier and earlier too, where you start to notice body changes and become more aware of it, perhaps become uncomfortable with it. And so there's that side of things. But I think prior to that happening, kids are not thinking about their bodies and typically how they look or how they feel in their body from a body image perspective, unless they're getting information about that from someone else, like a parent, like a friend or kind of a adult kind of guardian or media. Mm -hmm. And and that kind of segues into how we want to talk about body image too. You mentioned that at that age, body image is nothing, something that's really important to them. So when typically is body image important? Most people report, and, and if I'm wrong on this, I apologize, but from what I have experienced, most people report becoming more aware of that during puberty because your body is changing in significant ways that that's when people start noticing. 
as well as I think the peer aspect. So comparison with others begins to become more of an issue because you're noticing yourself and others and feel really desperate to fit in. And so that's where I think a lot of that hyper-focus begins. So as a parent, what, what is something that you would recommend to parents to do so that they're not perpetuating that same mentality onto their children? Mm-hmm. I love that question. Uh, one of the most important things is family meals. Okay. Seriously, carving out time and sitting down to have family dinners together is one of the most important things for children, for families, and to help kind of guard against eating disorders. Secondly, I think not attributing any sort of morality to food. So food is not good or bad. And I think the more appropriate way to talk about it is moderation. Right. You know, and and I think the biggest thing is not really labeling things as good or bad and all food is good food in moderation. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up an important point because that also leads into uh, the connection with diet culture because diet culture does does tell us that food is good or bad. And I will admit, I'm guilty. I ashamedly admit that I did that when I started my fitness journey 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we stopped cold turkey going to fast food. And I told my kids, we don't go there anymore. And my kids were toddlers, like, well, under five, you know, mm-hmm. so they were very impressionable. And I labeled everything as good and bad. Like we don't go to fast food places because that's all junk. We mm-hmm. don't eat chips. And I stopped buying all the chips, all the canned foods because I was being fed for from social media and from trying to educate myself that, you know, you don't get canned foods because it has high in sodium Mm -hmm. and that's not good for you. And you don't go eat junk food because that's also processed and that's not good for you. And even if you get like supposedly organic non-GMO, that's still junk food and it's just labeled differently and marketing strategies, it's still not good for you. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what would be your thoughts on that? On which part? (laughs) How with the marketing of with diet culture, how it does do that. It does feed into how things are good and bad and, and the toxic language that's used in mm-hmm. diet culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so many levels to this. There's so, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. That's why I was like, which part? I think one, so some of that focus on health is oftentimes an issue of privilege. People with money can buy and eat organic, unprocessed whole foods because they're much more expensive. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think that they're, and, and not that you were necessarily going there, but I think it is important to recognize that that lifestyle is not available to everybody. And so assigning morality and significant degree of health to that can be very damaging to people that don't have access to it. But it can also be damaging to people who do have access to it. I mean, the the fact of the matter is food is fuel and food is culture, which are two very different things, but it's important that we're holding those things together. I think about a podcast that I listened to a while back where it was talking about the French and uh, food and the French and how they, you know, kind of approach body image. And I think what they did was they interviewed people and asked them about what words come to mind when you think of, I think it was butter and uh, Americans were like, oh, high in fat. Like you need to skimp on it. You should really not have much of it. You're going to gain weight. And all the French were like, oh, it makes everything so, 
so delicious. It wasn't butter. It was heavy cream. Right. And so they were like, oh, it just enriches everything. It's wonderful. And so it, and what they were finding is that the Americans who are saying that this is bad are actually struggling more and more with health issues and obesity. And when we attach a morality to food, it affects the way that we think and feel. And that affects our bodies and our health far more than the food itself, because the enjoyment, the culture, the community around food is all very healthy. And so putting more of an emphasis on those aspects of eating are actually better for us than putting the emphasis on, is this good or bad, healthy or not healthy? Am I going to gain or lose weight or maintain by eating these things? You know, of of course, we can't deny that there are some things that are more nutrient dense that are important for us to be able to incorporate if we can afford it and if we have the time for it into our meals. But I think it's also important to not push away where uh, things are convenient. You know, we have packaged meals and they're very convenient. And if that's what people can eat because they need to, and they have something they need to get to on the go, it's more important that they eat than them eating just the right thing. Right. I I like how you highlighted the cultural aspect because that's something that for me and part of my decolonization Mm -hmm. process, I have come to realize how also my ethnic food of Mexican food has been very much given a morality into that. And so I'm curious to know if you have that knowledge or if you could provide some input on that, how cultural foods are often demonized in diet culture. Uh, That might take me a second to think about. So maybe it's first important to note that whatever the uh, hot diet or health food is at the time, that changes over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that it can depend whether somebody is paleo, right? There's like Atkins that it used to be really popular. At some point there was the grapefruit diet, you know, and then it's keto. So that, uh, right, is one that is more popular right now. And so I think depending on where the culture is and what it is sort of clinging to, that might tell us something about which foods and which cultural foods are off limits. So I think it's important to kind of look at it in that context. And at this point, I lost track of your original question. You know, you stayed on topic. You're right. It, it makes sense how what you're saying is Mexican food. And I'm going to speak specifically about my ethnic background because that's what I know. Mexican food has been demonized as, oh, well, you can't eat that because it's just high in fat. It's greasy. It's this and it's that or whatever they want to label it as. Right. Of course, that kind of goes with our society. We want to label everything. Mm-hmm. Everything has to have a label. So true. And so Mexican food has not been spared in this. Mm -hmm. And I've had to learn me personally that just because my food is different from what American food is, doesn't make my food bad. If you look at Mexican food, we typically use fresh ingredients in our food. Oh, and it's so wonderful. It's It's so good. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Taco Bell, is not Mexican food for those who still think it is. Because <laughs> <laughs> those are not really fresh ingredients. A lot of those things are, you know, processed or whatever. But as you said earlier, if that's what you can afford and that's what fuels you and feeds you, then we and cannot demonize that either. Right. And if you like it, there's nothing wrong with that. 
Right. And there's, you know, even in me, in my own mindset to shift that is Mm -hmm. so hard. Mm -hmm. It is so difficult to shift that in your mind to be like, for so many years, if you're being embedded in the diet culture, and as you said, now with social media, everything being thrown at you, it's so hard to make that shift and think, well, we can't label food good or bad. We can just label as food as food. And for me personally, going on along this journey has been mind blowing and how I've had to debunk uh, what diet culture means to me or be more anti-diet, I should say, more anti-diet culture, really. For me, that means reassessing the way I look at my body and the way I eat too. A lot of us with the diet culture have inherited disordered eating. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about what disordered eating is for those who don't know? Oh, sure. Um, (laughs) So this is a a tricky topic that as someone who works very closely with eating disorders, uh, I would say that most people have some form of disordered eating, Mm. uh, but not most people have eating disorders. So there is a distinction with that. And disordered eating can mean a lot of different things. It can mean ascribing to different diets. It can mean trying to, um, you know, shift your diet at different times, whether it's for performance or it's for this or that reason. Uh, I think that a lot of times too, disordered eating is in the name of health there's a, it's not official in the DSM, but there's orthorexia, which is this fixation on health and being healthy and exercising in just the right ways, your body looking a particular way, whether it's really toned and thin and eating all of the right foods, quote unquote, for all of this. So disordered eating can also though be that we're eating for comfort or we are eating for uh, different reasons, whether it's to numb emotions, to soothe emotions, to, uh, work something out. I think a lot of us lack the awareness of our own emotions, how they impact our eating, um, our attitudes toward our body, how that impacts our eating. And, you know, I think disordered eating, maybe by definition, at least my definition is just when things become out of balance in some way, where we really do, we lose the ability to discern and intuit what our body is needing in this moment and how much. Right. So when you talk about intuit, what does that mean? Well, there's a whole book on this called intuitive eating (laughs) that is really phenomenal. I think it's a great topic and a great read for anybody that's interested in learning more. Basically what it argues is that children are intuitive eaters, right? They may show up to a meal and be like, I'm not hungry. I don't like that. And without parent involvement, as far as like, no, you need to eat that, or you need to finish everything on your plate. Or, you know, I think encouraging kids, there's actually a whole system of things that parents can learn about this, but encouraging kids to try things, stuff like that, kind of watching language around it. Kids are, are very intuitive about knowing when they're hungry, knowing when they're full, knowing what sounds good. And it's important for us to not 
infringe upon that. We lose touch as we get older because we have all of these other forces telling us finish everything on your plate or don't eat that or leave this or whatever that is. And so we lose touch with actually how hungry or full we are, what sounds good to our bodies and paying attention to that in those moments. Yeah. And and I know that I fall into that as far as telling my kids when they were really little to finish all their food. But then I stopped when I started my health journey years ago. And, And that's because that was embedded in me. But some of that is also cultural or socioeconomic. Yes. Uh, Because my mom, she grew up very poor with, you know, 12 other siblings. (laughs) Can you imagine trying to feed 12, 13 kids? Right. And, and so whatever she had available was what she ate. Mm -hmm. And much like what we're talking about, you eat what you got. And at the time, since she was growing up in a different era, there wasn't very many processed foods. So Mm -hmm. everything was homemade. Mm -hmm. So that was the difference. However, because of that, it became ingrained in her that once she was able to afford food, it was like, you got to finish everything on your plate Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's just psychologically there that, oh, what it's that, what if I don't get to eat? Scarcity mentality. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So that was passed on to me like, oh, you got to finish everything on your plate because she didn't believe in wasting food Mm -hmm. and she still doesn't. She doesn't like to waste food. It bothers her. Mm -hmm. And it's because she grew up with that scarcity mentality and it hasn't left her all these years. And she's now in her, you know, late Mm sixties. So (laughs) I had to stop that cycle. Mm -hmm. And that was very hard. And I know that there's other people out there that also have that mentality in them. What are some other things that we inherit from our parents, such as scarcity? That's a good question. On on the note of this, I think, again, the intuitive eating book is very helpful because it helps kind of flesh out that concept of like, I don't want to waste it. And the reality is that if our body is not needing it, we are wasting it anyway. Right. And so that is one way that they think about that, which some people find helpful. I also grew up in a family that was like, eat everything on your plate. Mm -hmm. And it was a battle when I was a kid because my mom would make me sit at the table until everything was done. And I would get really sneaky and find ways to like get rid of the food without actually eating it so that I could go to bed. (laughs) Um, But so much of that was because my grandparents came from the depression era. You do not waste anything because you don't have anything. And, you know, so they would collect and keep everything. And then of course, raised my parents that way. And that has just trickled down. But as far as things that we inherit in regards to food, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of things. So there are a lot of rules that people have that most of us never think about, whether it's what foods you eat at certain times of day, whether it's like, it's appropriate to, I had a conversation recently about appropriate times of day for someone to have milk. And some people are like, milk is only a morning thing. And other people are like, no, it's okay to have in the evening or later in the day. And so we inherit, I think, certain rules around food, whether it's like chicken doesn't belong in breakfast, unless it's Chick-fil-A, that's probably one of my rules (laughs) (laughs) or maybe like chicken and waffles, but I do not want chicken anywhere near my breakfast, except for those two things. We all have rules, whether they're inherited or developed on our own. I'm trying to think what else may come up. Can you think of any? I know in my culture, I like my grandmother, her way of, of showing us love was feeding us. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So whenever we'd show up and of course my grandmother lived in the border. So whenever we'd show up, she'd like, 
she wanted to know how we could feed us. And, and when she knew we were coming, she'd have food ready for us. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. even if she wanted to give us a snack, which was like a tortilla with a avocado inside with salt, here's a snack. And, you know, as a child, I didn't know that was actually a pretty healthy snack. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's stuff like that. Was there also the expectation that you like enjoy it or have seconds? Kind of. Yes. Would you like some more? Yes. yes. With her, it was. Yes. That means you really liked it. And that made her feel in turn, right. in kind loved, you know, right. like, oh, I feel fulfilled because you enjoyed my food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do have so many cultural norms around food like that. And depending on culture, depending on our roots, but then also just depending on the way that we grew up, we, we inherit a lot of those things. And sometimes we don't know. I, I watched a documentary once uh, called Long Way Round, and there's another called Long Way Down. And it's basically Ewan McGregor goes around the world on a motorbike. But what's really cool is he gets really involved in different cultures. And so there are certain things that he learns as he goes along about um, different cultures and food rituals. I used to work for an organization that was international and we would host a big event. And it was a lot of times we had American foods and the people who were here were like, can we have more rice? Cause we usually have rice with every single meal and we're only having it about two to three times a week here. Can we have more rice? Right. So there's a lot of of implications with culture and food and family of origin. Right. So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how the demonizing of the foods, but it's like, how can you demonize something that somebody's grown up with and they've been able to survive with the way they've been eating perfectly fine. And it's not damaging anyone or anything. Right. So that says a lot. I think on that note, uh, if I may, it's it's a subtle shift, but it's similar, is our cultural messaging around weight. And at least in the United States, fat equals unhealthy and lazy. Mm. That is how people interpret fat, unhealthy and lazy. What now, you know, a lot of um, recovery communities, eating disorder communities are trying to dispel is that fat does not always equal unhealthy and skinny does not always equal healthy because there are plenty of people who are really thin, perhaps even underweight, have terrible health or, you know, are thin because they have some sort of health issue. And likewise, there are plenty of people in larger bodies that do not have any health concerns, Mm -hmm. that they are are in good health. And so for us to look at that in such a black or white way, we're finding is also incorrect. And unfortunately, in the medical field, there are even misconceptions about this. And so you've got people that specialize in eating disorders that are going up against some doctors that have bought into the belief that if you are fat, you are unhealthy. And so now trying to kind of pull some of that apart, sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's not true. And so we can't just blanket statement, some things like that, because it's damaging a lot of people. I agree. It was damaging to me because when I lost my hundred pounds, I was a size 12 and I went from a 26. Mm-hmm. That's a huge jump. That's a huge difference. And I still felt fat. Mm-hmm. And I felt like people looked at me as not healthy because I was still on the thicker side. 
Yeah. I really identify with that and I understand in a deep level. Mm -hmm. And so it's been hard for me when I've gained all this weight back, almost the whole hundred. Mm -hmm. And now having to go back to my routine of what worked. So working out every day and making it a schedule and a routine to what you were talking about, like yesterday, I was at the gym and this lady, of course, I'm, I'm a much bigger woman now, you know, she's a pregnant lady and she's just watching me and looking at me and giving me looks. And I'm just like, you know, I'm here to work out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in my own business. <laughs> yeah, my but it, a lot of people do look at people with bigger bodies and they give you those looks and they think you know you're doing it wrong they'll think that's one of the things you're doing it wrong and they'll think that you are unhealthy when you know even at my size 12 I was pretty healthy I mean I was doing Spartan races mm-hmm. I was deadlifting. my highest was 255 mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a dramatic change for me to now be back again in a bigger body. And that's something I'm struggling with. I feel now that I've gained all this weight back, I am realizing that I had body dysmorphia back then. And it's because I never dealt with it. And I didn't know that I had it. Now that I've gotten to be in the larger body again, it has bubbled up. And and that's something really big to swallow. So Mm -hmm. for someone who is in a bigger body and dealing with all those issues, what do you tell them? Uh, First, I think to validate the pain of living in a larger body in our culture. It is an uphill battle and the looks are real. The judgment is real and it does no good to pretend like, no, people aren't thinking that Mm -hmm. because Maybe not everybody is, but people are. Mm -hmm. And it's, I guess, just providing support because things are not changing fast enough to make all of the the painful experiences go away. But I think that there are, you know, lots of ways that we can educate and advocate. And, you know, I know that, for example, Instagram is one of the the top social media platforms that, you know, their algorithms and all these things promote so much about diet culture, Mm -hmm. losing weight or or body image kind of issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to mention all the plastic surgery. Even on mine, I'm like, where's all this coming from? Why am I seeing this? It is so distorting, I think, for all of us to experience that. Because then it's like you start noticing things about yourself and it's like, oh, like what? What is that? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just kind of highlights that experience that we are not measuring up. We are not enough. We're not fitting the cultural ideal. And it's painful. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I think there are some things, but not enough that are coming out to challenge those. There's one, I wish I could remember her handle off the top of my head. It's maybe like food science, babe. I think you may find her by looking that up, but she'll get like somebody on Instagram. That's like, when you go down the aisle, like just look at the ingredients. And if you can't pronounce it, you shouldn't buy this. And then she like pops in and she's like, actually, as the person who, you know, works in a science lab, creating food, here's what this is. And this is in everything. And here's what this is. So she dispels a lot of the myths And I think we need more, more things like that, I think, to be in touch with the truth and then to advocate as much as we can and communicate the truth in a widespread way in our culture, I think is perhaps at this point in time, the best we can do. I love that. I've heard of her before. It is food science, babe, and not to be confused with food, babe. That might be what she's bucking up against. (laughs) 
Yeah, because Food Babe is all about looking at the label and this is bad. And when I started my journey, I, I followed her vigilantly and I was like, oh my God, I'm putting all this bad food in my body. Right, right. And again, with the labeling. Uh-huh. And honestly, so I, I also don't want to villainize people who do prefer and can afford to eat organically and eat more whole foods, because Mm -hmm. I I don't think that inherently there's something wrong with that, but it's, it's more about recognizing our own attitudes Mm -hmm. because that influences our health and our well being far more than the food that we are putting into our body. Right. Some people might disagree with that and that's okay. Right. I can't, I can't win them all. (laughs) Right. I think we have to recognize the ways that we are perpetuating myths, but then also damaging by using information in an extreme way and the impact that that is having on body image, on well-being, anxiety, depression, nutrition, eating disorders, all of it. Yeah. And it's sad that it's gotten that way. And I didn't mean to villainize food, babe, and not at all. No, no, no. I didn't suggest, I didn't mean to suggest that you were. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, it did get to a point kind of like to what you're saying that some people can't afford that, the privilege. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of privilege in diet culture too. Yes, there is. And so I was following her and I got to a point where like, I can't afford to eat everything or organic the way that she does. Mm-hmm. She has that privilege, right, the, right. the financial privilege and other people who follow her probably also have that privilege. I do not. Right. I can buy some things organic. I can watch the labels a little bit to make sure and things are not high, super high in sugar or don't have, you know, high corn fructose syrup or whatever, but I can't do everything. It was like, she expected you to do it to a T. That's the, the way I interpret it anyway. Not necessarily to say that she was telling us to do that, but that's the way I interpreted it. Well, I think that's how a lot of us interpret it. And I think that's how disordered eating and eating disorders, at least in part, come about because something with eating disorders is a lot of it is there's temperament, particularly for certain types of eating disorders, such as anorexia, there's oftentimes this temperament that is very hypervigilant, rigid, rule-bound, it prone toward morality and things like that. And so, and this is something that I, I try to tell parents is that, you know, it's one thing to believe in, in things being healthier than others. But when we're working with say a teenager or young adult, or even an adult who is struggling with anorexia, they take that and they run with it. And so then they begin to apply that one idea to all things. And so what that means is they start shrinking the foods that they are allowed to eat and Mm -hmm. heaven forbid, because it is changing all the time. Butter is healthy. No, it's unhealthy. Oh no, you want this avocado is great because it has good fats, right? Like Mm -hmm. it changes all the time. What is good and what is bad that people get to a point that they're like, what am I supposed to believe anymore? I guess I just can't eat anything. Right. And, and quite literally some people will take those things and run with it and just kind of prey on that temperament and personality type that is going to follow all of those things. And it's very damaging. Oh yeah. What are some of the damaging or toxic language that you hear in the diet? I think we've said a lot of them already. I think about healthy, unhealthy, paleo, keto, good, bad, 
focusing a lot on weight, focusing a lot on like whole foods, organic, unprocessed, eating at home versus eating out. And again, I think the better way of looking at it or going about it is everything in moderation and listening to your own body cues and what is best for you, because what is best for me versus what is best for you may be different. Right. I've also heard though, and you can correct me if you feel like this is not correct, but whenever I hear a workout is better than no workout, okay, that's something I hear or no pain, no gain. Yes. Yes. Zero excuses. Yes. Other things. So you're, you're triggering some memories about things because uh, other things that I hear is about cheat days, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm good during the week, but I have like a cheat day. Uh-huh. Uh, that's one of them. Another is like, you have to earn this. So you have to work out in order to earn that burger is oftentimes what people will say, or, or that cocktail that you're having right. or working out to enjoy a holiday that's coming up. Or I will say, I saw a friend of mine post something today about the place where we work out and was like getting it in for spring break, right? Like there's all of these things that we are preparing for, which mm-hmm. implies my body's not okay how it is. If I'm going to be revealing this to other people on a beach, which is usually spring break, right? Mm-hmm. That I need to lose weight. I need to change my body. I need to fix this in order for it to be acceptable to me and others. Right. And and I'm wondering too, like, is it really about ourselves or is it about others or how much of it is each? I don't know the answer to that, but I do think it's both. That goes into body dysmorphia too, don't, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how much of the diet culture plays into body dysmorphia? Oh, I think significantly. So as I understand it, uh, body dysmorphic disorder can be its own disorder that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with an eating disorder, or somebody can have an eating disorder and also have that dis- a distortion or, or hyper-focus. And I, I mean, the reality is, in my opinion, <laughs> so maybe it's not reality, it's just my opinion, mm-hmm. that most of us don't see ourselves clearly. I I think about the, for anybody who studied psychology, it's usually in a textbook and it's this image that shows different body sizes. And it's kind of a progression of like a smaller body to a larger body. And I think it's numbered like one through 10. And you ask somebody like, which one are you most similar to? And most people are incorrect about how they see themselves versus how somebody else sees themselves when looking at a measure like that. We do not see ourselves accurately. I think about the Dove beauty sketches and how somebody will highlight their flaws and say like, oh, I have a really large nose or I have this feature. And so when the guy sketches them out, the actual one where a stranger described them and wasn't focused on the flaws looks far more like the person than how the person is describing themselves. Yeah, that's powerful Mm -hmm. that we don't see ourselves clearly. Mm -hmm. And that's even like that hit me almost at a spiritual level. Yes. (laughs) like that there's that's really deep like we don't see ourselves clearly like let that sink in Uh I'm just wow I'm just thinking about it I'm thinking about how by not seeing ourselves clearly we're not seeing who we are as individuals and we're basing so much of who we are on the size of our bodies right right and and that's powerful because it's like you said there are people out there who have larger bodies and I follow some of those people and they are very active outdoors. They mm-hmm. work out in the gym mm-hmm. and they 
don't have huge health problems. Mm -hmm. I know that I was one of those people when I was smaller. You know, I didn't have any health problems. Even when I was larger, I probably just had difficulty doing, you know, active mm -hmm. things, but I didn't have health problems. Now I do, I guess, because I went through all those years of doing all that stuff that I didn't know was not healthy for me, you know, mm -hmm. eating 1500 calories. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have to say about that? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, if you have my fitness pal, delete it <laughs> because it will recommend very restrictive calorie intakes, depending on goal weight and thing. And it's not sustainable. And 90 to 95% of all diets fail mm -hmm. and people diet to lose weight or to be healthier. Right. But right. oftentimes the weight that you lose or the health that you gain maybe, uh, within a year, I don't know the exact statistic, but it's, I mean, most people are right back where they were. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, as we do that, so most people have a pretty natural set point where their body likes to sort of rest as, as far as a weight range. And as you yo-yo through diets and you lose weight and you gain weight, you lose weight and you gain weight. Most people gain weight more than where they were when they started the diet, they gain it plus a little bit more and then they lose it and then they gain it plus a little bit more. And what's mm -hmm. happening is people's set points is increasing. And we don't know that by dieting, we will eventually actually weigh more than the weight that we did when we started, but that's the reality. And so it's not really wise to ever, you know, eat such, such a restrictive diet. Since restricting your calorie intake is not important, what is important for us calorie goes? I, I would probably trust a dietitian to answer that more. I mean, calories is essentially energy mm -hmm. and our body needs a lot of energy just for its everyday functions. If you never got up off the couch, your body still needs a lot of energy just to work. It still needs a lot of calories just to work. If you are active, it does need more. Right. And that in itself is important to know too, because a lot of people just are focused on the restriction mm -hmm. and they're focused on, I need to burn so many calories to be in a calorie deficit. Mm -hmm. And we're not putting into consideration that just to live, we burn calories. Right. And a lot of people don't know that. I, I was one of those who didn't know that. Mm -hmm. That in itself is powerful knowledge to know. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot. Yeah. How many calories isn't, is it specific per person? How many calories you burn just to be alive? It, it depends on the, on the person. It depends. I think on their, I think on their different factors, like stress, heart rate, variability, maybe ability, like the health of your body and it's functioning. It probably depends. Metabolism is a factor which of course eating is beneficial to metabolism of, because if you are not eating, your metabolism slows. Our body is wired for survival. Mm -hmm. And so when we restrict, our body thinks, oh no, I need to hold on to what I have. Or if we restrict and then we allow ourselves food, we get into that restrict binge cycle because our bodies are so wired for survival. And so it's going to, in most cases, want us to eat and get us to eat and consume food in order to stay alive. Right. Well, you've given us a lot of good information and I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast and coming back for a second time and giving us all of your wonderful knowledge. And there's certainly nuggets for me that I'm walking away with and uh, I've appreciated you being here.
I'm so glad. Thank you. And, and I would say with this stuff, stay tuned because more information is coming out all the time. And so I would encourage listeners to educate yourself on it, ask questions, try to, you know, have these conversations with people because information is always changing. And so just stay, stay tuned because some of this could change in different ways. Right. So before I let you go, what would be one thing, one tip or advice you would give for someone who is struggling with these issues and they haven't gotten the help they need? With that last qualifier, I would say get help. Help, help is out there. Therapist, as well as dietitians. I specifically would recommend a dietitian that has experience working with eating disorders, because if you simply go to a nutritionist, a lot of it may be kind of myths around diet culture and reinforcing some of that. And so do your homework. There are people that are dietitians that take insurance. There are eating disorder therapists that take insurance as well as private pay. We've got a lot of great options in the DFW area and beyond. Yes, uh, you. And, and resources that, that are available even online, but it's, it's hard to do this without the help of somebody else. Right. That's good. I like that. Thank you so much. I appreciate Welcome. you being here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed speaking to you. Make sure that you're following my Instagram page to stay up to date for the next episode. That's all for today, and you are listening to The Backpacking Introvert. Until next time.